Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking to Anastasia Depsova, who is a lecturer in journalism at the University of Westminster, about her really well-timed and fascinating book, Internet Memes and Society, Social, Cultural and Political Context. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, I mentioned this is uh, incredibly well-timed, but I, I, we were just saying before we started, even this morning, my Twitter feed is full of a whole range of discussions about online behavior and politics. And it seems as if this is like the crucial question. And I suppose the, the place to start is kind of what, what got you interested in, uh, in this stuff and what, I guess, led you to think about writing a book about uh, not just internet memes, but also the kind of interaction between internet life and behavior and politics. I mean, I used to work as a journalist um, since I was 17 in Russia, and I loved my job. I was working as a TV reporter, then international editor, and I seen how the free space was shrinking in front of me and around me. So I left um, the national TV news to start working in the magazines, and then the space kept shrinking further down so um, and I was really surprised to see that the real political communication real discussion would um, evacuate itself to the internet very often or to the uh, offline protests and um, perhaps the only networks where people could uh, express themselves and talk about political issues would be Facebook, uh, Contacti which is a Russian network, some other blogs and sometimes people would use those big um, expressive images which we do know as memes uh, in the current um, day. So, and they would take them offline and use them as posters during the, one of the biggest protests in 2011-12. So with like 100,000 people went to the street, which was unprecedented really. Um, and that's why I thought, hmm, that's very interesting. I'm very curious to see uh, where it can take us. Because we used to talk about uh, infotainment, which is the merge between information and entertainment. In professional journalism and now it looked like something info political attainment was happening um, and that's what I proposed for my PhD title which was turned down um, <laughs> and I rather agree with that and yeah I ended up researching memes for four years of my life and then I wrote a book about that and I kept looking into the development of memes and it became a really big topic, really big deal in Western democracies, in non-Western political climates. So that's the backstory. I mean, the, the really obvious question that comes to mind is, what are we actually talking about here? What, what is a meme? And one of the things the book sets out quite early is, there are kind of some issues about how we define memes mm. and, you know, what is and what isn't. I mean, I would say they are versatile cultural units that people can easily share among themselves, they can adjust it. And they are light and funny enough to keep going and um, accessing wide crowds of people. I mean, originally it comes the word itself from Richard Dawkins, uh, the Oxford biologist, who said 30 or 40 years ago by now um, that we have genes. So people, when they transmit their DNA information from generation to generation, they have genes that do this job in their bodies, this kind of minimal unit of uh, biological identifiers, data whatsoever. And that's why, let's say, the mother has curly hair, the child has curly hair. And he was thinking that maybe there is a similar thing happening in culture, 
Um, and he looked at this uh, Greek word mimesis, and he coined the word meme, which means that in culture, things um, imitate um, the other things, and they replicate, and they go through generations, they go horizontally, they go vertically through time, through space. Um, although um, the idea sounded rather kind of trendy and buzzwordy at the time, there's been lots of criticism afterwards, because people were saying that, Hang on, but if a gene mutates, the body is spirit, it's not really good. Um, whilst when a meme mutates, when culture mutates, it's the most healthy natural process. And uh, I think like loads of further scholars from psychology, from um, media studies, sociology, uh, mathematics, computer science and whatnot, they try to uh, narrow down the definition of memes. So I think for the media and culture studies, memes are this uh, easily um, transmittable um, half-baked jokes that people can uh, easily um, adjust according to the context of the day, to the agenda, and send it to their friends. Some other people would just reshare it. The context can change, the meaning can change, but that's the beauty of it. Some people say that they started in the online forums like 9gag, 4chan, as this geeky way of expressing themselves. I personally like the theory that they come from emoticons. So when people started communicating by email or without face-to-face -face contact, uh, it was liking the emotional side of things. Because when you write an email, it can be easily misunderstood. So adding a bit of smileys, emotions, and then, uh, well, now we even have like gifs and stickers. Um, so memes were um, occupying the space, um, and they were adding some more humor, satire, irony. The best thing about memes is that it can be an inside joke, so you really need to be aware what's the problem with like Taylor Swift, for example, to, to get the joke, or you really need to be aware what's going on with Boris Johnson in this country at the moment, to understand why it's supposed to be funny. Also, you need to be on a certain side of the, let's say, political spectrum, to figure out whether it's funny or offensive. The best things happen when people share memes which they don't fully understand and they may express something completely contrary to their beliefs or be very racist or sexist. But um, there's the other hidden layering of memes because they can contain jokes that maybe have not been challenged yet in a particular society or by a particular person However, they can be read in a different way by the audience. So it is, um, it is a paradox. It's a very multi-layered cultural text, which is also really simple when you just receive it in a daily, day, um, kind of daily ephemeral communication. I mean, the, the best way to illustrate this is with Pepe the Frog, which I, mean, <laughs> I always assume everybody who is on the internet will be familiar with this now. Um, Again, everybody who is on the internet will have some awareness of its connotations mm -hmm. and its relationship with uh, particular kinds of politics and political expression. But as you mentioned already, actually what's interesting here is the story of the mutation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pepper the Frog, I mean, I have, I have a problem with this idea of identifying Pepper the Frog with neo-Nazi, with right-wing extremism. Initially, it was a professional cartoon that uh, was quite harmless and it was portraying this frog that found itself in an embarrassing situation, something like that, 
having a fence down in the bathroom and yeah. somebody walks in and says, oh, what are you doing? Nothing more than that, really. Um, and this awkwardness, this kind of teenage embarrassment, it's so common in memes. It's nothing particular. And a green frog also, I'm not sure even if we dig deep into semiotics, are we going to find much evidence that it's far-right extremism? But what happened that uh, memes were circulating, lots of memes coming from, let's say, Trump supporters, um, people who uh, promote certain views. Um, and it was the Hillary Clinton's political advisors, her office, that declared at a certain point that, oh, thank God, we condemn that with the frog as the symbol of far-right extremism. Which was interesting because it's coming from a rather old-school politician that's been doing her campaign in a very traditional way with big celebrities, with big events, with campaign posters, instead of engaging with the power of the digital, as much as, let's say, Barack Obama did in his time. So based on that, um, some academics, journalists, public commentators would say that the frog is the symbol of Nazism. I'm not sure. I mean, if you ask now a 17-year-old if they would recognize Pepper the Frog, I'm not sure they would. Mm, yeah, but the if, moment is... Yeah, exactly. The moment is pretty much gone. And if somebody would like to resurrect Pepper the Frog and make it a symbol of I don't know, teenage romance or hanging out with mates, it can happen easily. And I suppose one of the crucial things, again, as you point out, is the way that it can be presented in a very knowing way. So you know, mm -hmm. after it's been condemned, certain groups can present it as, but we're just presenting it as an, as an innocent frog with mm -hmm. a, a wink and a nudge whilst at the same time, yeah. um, you know, the kind of, the moment might be passing or be still with us. And, and this is one of the problems of kind of pinning down memes, mm -hmm. I guess, mm -hmm. is that um, there's always a, I suppose, some ways of playfulness, mm -hmm. but also in other ways, actually a whole problematic set uh, of science yeah. and symbols. Um, I agree with you. It can be easily, let's say, appropriated. Uh, and the other is when you declare something, a symbol of something, other people will sign up for it just for this pure reason. Um, I mean, we can argue up to the discussion about uh, ISIS, that they created such a strong visual imagery that many people follow just because they were most visible, they were most recognizable in the flows of network communication. So I think with memes, uh, we do have a similar story going on. I mean, th th this is one of the things that the book is very keen on actually, is thinking about these questions of whether we talk about it as kind of disinformation or uh, I mean, one of the terms you use in it, in the book is this idea of a kind of like a mind bomb, mm. uh, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, which tells us a bit, I think, about the kind of the limits of mm. memes, both in terms of being uh, forms of resistance, aggressive platforms, mm. but also actually uh, some of the limits uh, where they're used for more aggressive or far-right politics. Mm -hmm. Memes are always loaded with a particular emotion, with a particular sort of irony very often, which means that they are rather limited in their progressive potential. Uh, if you want to create a meme about a politician, you clearly want to transmit a certain opinion about this politician and probably make fun of him or her. 
it's very difficult uh, to you know praise someone through a meme and make it go viral. As we know, negative things they spread much better than positive things. Um, also, it also depends about the saturation of information and symbols and discussions in the so-called public sphere in the West. You have cartoons, you have a variety of media outlets, offline and online. Um, in other countries, let's say China, Russia, some other countries in Asia, perhaps where the regime is not as free, where you do have that much freedom of expression, freedom of press, um, memes can become slightly more powerful. I would say that they will save the world, but they have more power to reach people because they are more unique, they're more exclusive. They, they give a fresh approach, fresh vision of something else. Uh, that's why in 2011-12, in the Russian protests, memes were quite strong because suddenly this generation of young uh, urban dwellers, they found their language, they found their community. Russians are not very keen on forming communities. It's something coming from this post-Soviet idea that your neighbor could be a spy, uh, they would call you a traitor, you don't need there is always this idea of somebody's watching behind your back. So people do not come together that easily. But in this case, means uh, network conversations, debates, blogs, living comments to YouTube videos, they created this virtual, um, uncommitted space. Uh, and that has a power. The same in China, when they use lots of funds, to avoid uh, being caught by the censorship uh, professionals. And um, I think especially in those uh, countries, in those regimes, when memes are more mind-bondy, right, they do have this more sparkly potential rather than the normal democracies. They can make more change, and also people will find it easier to share because memes are anonymous, and you can share it, somebody would reshare it, you can always say, well, I didn't create this. I just like the joke about something else in this meme, not about politics. I thought the pun was funny. And that creates a bit a layer of protection. However, there have been recent laws in Russia that say, first of all, you can share a meme with a real person in it. Two or three years ago, they passed this one. Uh, you can, even sharing the recent law can bring you to jail. So it's curious to see how I think uh, the government is following up on the developments in memes. And, but even the existence of these laws shows that what's happening with memes online is rather important. I mean, the, the, the Russian uh, story, the Russian case study is, is very much the heart of the book. Mm -hmm. and, and we should probably spend quite a bit of time on, on this, I think. And you've alluded to both how the state has reacted uh, to memes, uh, how it's you know, tried to stop their potential as sports resistance. But, but I guess the, the question is, what is the story of, of the meme in, in mm -hmm. Russia, particularly, you, know, you mentioned protests and the role of protest movements. So why are memes so important uh, mm -hmm. in, in the space of Russian politics? Um, it's interesting. By the time I was uh, finishing my PhD and then writing a book, there were much more pro-government memes than anti-government memes. So the ones that I saw in the very beginning, there would be anti-corruption, there would be anti-abuse of power, there would be this anti-idea of, I mean, since the 90s, the idea of hard power, of gang politics, of um, 
being, I wouldn't say criminal equals desired. I mean, in the 90s, there was such a lawless state of mind, state of affairs in the country that people would start to seek protection from certain gangs. And there's, uh, in the thousands, there's been this flow of films. They would glorify the kind of the mafia culture of the 90s. And since then, one of the most um, praised, desired macho symbols on the screen, they all come from this 90s criminal gang mentality. And very often the memes that criticize the current Russian power, they allude to those symbols. However, the pro-government memes, they also use these reference points and uh, they, they praise the current people. <clears throat> if you remember the famous um, professionally taken images of Vladimir Putin on his hunting trips and, and flying with grace and whatnot, it's all about the macho power. It's like James Bond movies become a reality. So it's pretty interesting how sometimes meme makers from the resistance side of things and the, um, the government, they take from the same pool of reference, but they cook it differently. Um, the other, so this, the, it, it sort of opens again the debate of what was happening in the 90s when the Soviet Union collapsed and the capitalism started. Some people say, finally, it was freedom of speech, freedom of television channels and stuff, private property. Other people say, oh, it was so criminalized that now finally we have stability, which is the best thing to have. Cares about, you know, civil rights and freedoms. Um, so um, eventually I came to see <clears throat> these um, arguments in the shapes of memes that people would construct uh, on social networks. Then there was this whole lot about um, gender relations. I mean, it's something um, very much under-discussed in Russia. <clears throat> I mean, the, the variety of sexist memes, kind of anti-gay memes, pouring from both sides, it's astonishing. People don't see any problem in it. Um, then uh, the discussion about corruption, which is very familiar topic to Russians for centuries. <laughs> I mean, I used to study at school all those uh, 19th century writers that would condemn corruption in beautiful ways. It's the same old thing. They would condemn current new makers' corruption in a myriad of great creative ways, but um, it's very easy to dismiss it because the pro-government makers would just say, oh, you've been paid by the West, you, you live by American embassy money, uh, what do you know, you hate your country, the discourse about traitors coming back, the Cold War. Um, so it was, it was even disheartening sometimes to see how easily these new stems of civil society would be just completely destroyed. Then there was the whole part about the conflict in Crimea. Mm. So it's been around 2000, up to the 2014 Olympic Games. Uh, there was some tension in the peninsula of Crimea that used to belong to Ukraine. And there was the argument that because over 90% of population there, ethnic Russians, they speak Russian, so they don't want to be um, attacked by neo-fascists or whatnot. And some unknown troops appeared in the area, uh, which were never identified up until much later on, which were kind of confirmed that they were coming from Russia. And they organized a referendum and they voted to leave Ukraine and join Russia the next day. So it's been quite a big diplomatic scandal. 
So lots of memes, pro-government memes. I mean, you can see serious investment over there because they would all praise Crimea coming back home, all these narratives of the Odyssey coming back from the long journey, all the narratives of the troops, of the army, glorification of the army went through the roof. So there was this whole justification through the language of memes and symbols and uh, the anti-government memes in this case, they would be talking about robbing, about being gang, um, behave, behaving like gang again. But having seen the discourse on the gang and criminal culture, it doesn't even strike as something really bad because for many Russians it's still the symbol of power, the unquestioned power, unlike the institutions which are kind of helpless sometimes. One of the accounts that struck me is called, uh, on, used to be on Instagram, I think they shut it down now, but it's called The Polite People. So I had a chance to interview the guys behind it, which are public relations professionals, uh, which like lots of credentials. It's like, I think three people, one of them, I know their name, two others want to stay anonymous. And it's, it's a wonderful public relations campaign. And they say that they were doing it non-profit and after work for their own pleasure. So when the first armed people, armed troops arrived to Crimea, uh, there was this discourse coming from, some people say from local newspapers to the, to the national media or from the spin doctors, they were calling the troops polite people. Because one of the local governors said, oh, but I don't mind. They're nice and polite people. They can stay here. And this idea of polite people, it went everywhere. I mean, there are T-shirts that you can buy. Maybe not in the duty-free airport in <laughs> Moscow, but pretty, pretty much close by the train stations. I'm sure you can. You know, the T-shirts with tanks, with the word polite people, with the armor, with the symbols of military. And um, the national television picked this up. So they were talking a lot about polite people, about how nice it is to have troops, you know, next to your house. They protect you. So again, this idea of the hard power, the only power you can rely on, you know, diplomacy, soft power go through the window. So it's very interesting, even on the level of discourse analysis, of critical discourse analysis, where does the power lie? Uh, so it was kind of a whirlpool of investigation, which also uh, helped me to learn a lot about my own country about the culture, about the, the ideas that dominate even the opposition makers when it comes to what is power, what is weakness, what is right, what is wrong. Can we be kind or we shouldn't? I mean, in some ways, I phrase this carefully, but we expect these discussions in the context of Russian politics. And uh, Russia is now you know, fairly or unfairly think indelibly associated with this form of disinformation politics and you know kind of uh, online discourses uh, in contemporary both British and American discussions and we see this government level uh, but also in kind of popular discussions as well but the book doesn't conclude with Russia mm -hmm. it opens up the American case study and, and I think what one of the things that's important is you know, that this is not a Russian story. Mm -hmm. You know, this is very much uh, a story about the internet because the internet's global and thus it is a global story. Um, and, and I guess the place to kind of uh, conclude is what are the comparisons with, with the states? Mm -hmm. And, you know, are there 
kind of similar stories going on with the um, previous election, Trump versus Clinton. When I had a look at the circulation of memes uh, before the election, when Trump was elected and Hillary lost, it was curious because I wasn't able to find any particular strong meme or series of memes that would be endorsed by many people, shared by many people. Many of them were reactive, so they would be responding to something from the mainstream media. Some of them were making some, I would say, silly claims that, oh, Hillary is an alcoholic mm. and using some badly taken pictures of her. Yeah, there was no Obama and Hope. Um, I can't remember the, the artist's uh-huh. name, but you know, there was no yeah. defining symbol for, for that election. Yeah, exactly. So um, there was, it's, I mean, it's in their case, it seems like uh, the mainstream figures, like, Trump and his advisors and the media that supported him, they were providing lots of food for those memes, lots of bad ingredients to cook from the crooked Hillary. Yeah, um, make America great again. Make America yeah. great again. The, the most creative thing I saw is when um, Hillary's campaign posters were photoshopped into making them kind of pro-war. Mm. There was this images of this young, beautiful woman that would say, I'm with her and wear a military uniform. Uh, assuming that Hillary will send everyone to a war, men, women, whatever age. But once again, there wouldn't be this kind of huge amount of sharing or endorsement around there. I think um, the critical thing about the election that happened is that I think that's the first time I realized that the power of filter bubbles of these kind of small conversations that happen in some remote parts of the country, they, they matter. Sometimes uh, people take what they discuss, let's say, in the in a pub to online or vice versa. So uh, there wasn't evidence that memes changed a lot the course of elections, at least from the uh, qualitative perspective. Uh, but what was evident is that Trump is a very mimetic figure. He's so he's the fountain. It's like a waterfall of memes. Every day you can take fifty based on what he says, what he does, how he looks, how he behaves, this um, constant spectacle, uh, which makes it really easy. I mean, even now, if you look these days, the recent memes are from European politics, uh, it's either Macron saying order in front of Boris Johnson, which is the most meaningless part of the conversation yeah. they had. Or it's the, the Trump handshake that didn't happen. Uh, the Trump handshake didn't happen. Melania Trump kissing Justin Trudeau. Yeah. She makes great meme material, but it's completely meaningless in terms of what does it actually confer. Um, but uh, I think when it all started in like early 2000s, when the memes would become bigger and spread wider and faster, now, the, I'm not a big fan of the word filter bubbles, but the fact that people sometimes kind of isolate themselves in their ideas, or they seek entertainment, or they seek shareable things, that's something in psychology and mentality, in the use of networks that is happening. So in memes, they can take really nasty forms. I mean, I'm looking with horror at some criticism to Greta Thunberg, which is... 16-year-old climate activist and receiving so much hate speech and all this kind of vitriol. The problem with memes is that sometimes because they have this um, message inside, certain emotion, certain irony, it's very easy to fill them up with offensive material. 
And whilst, let's say, in restrictive environments, memes can still make a point on the progressive side, now more and more stuff is appearing that's just pure, rude, and vulgar. Uh, and people just keep sharing because people want likes, people want attention. So it's there are so many ways to look at this kind of critically. Um, I think at the current um, state, it's a bit dangerous to have so many memes flowing around uh, instead of the constructive, clear conversations. Even newspaper covers in the UK, when I was looking after the news about the parliament, they were all trying to create news. They even look like demotivator memes sometimes, you know, this big expressive image and a couple of captions on top and on the button. And this is really dangerous. I mean, is this what you see in the kind of the future of how we understand memes as being less about the potential for resistance and more to do with signs and symbols that are predominantly a kind of, um, I suppose, a way of, communities speaking to each other. Yeah, I think it's this very fast food communication sort of thing happening, which I covered in my book, uh, when first it was journalists who were using memes sometimes as baits of attention to their stories. I mean, we know that BuzzFeed tried a lot about this, even The Economist has a Snapchat channel, which is not as animatic, but still they try trying to get the audience on board. But the reality is this, in this really fast-paced environment, sometimes memes can communicate something very wrong, very corrupt, very misleading, disinforming the population at the end. And uh, people, as busy as they are, can just get everything from the meme. So they just take the bait and they don't get to see the rest of the information, the rest of analysis. And that's the danger of relying on memes too much. I wouldn't say we should restrict memes, but uh, it's all coming back to the, the digital literacy, the understanding for the people that it's not everything that's popular is right, that there is no need to follow something just because it's funny. Um, something that's funny gets much easier to your memory. You, you notice it much easier, the internet flows. But um, for, for the democracy, for the future of constructive communication, means as they are right now, can present a problem. And are you doing more work on this subject or have you got a completely different research agenda? Uh, after spending kind <laughs> of six or seven years on memes, I really felt like I needed something different to focus <laughs> yeah. on. So I did some research about the Russian rap and the responses on YouTube, uh, which was pretty interesting because people are more cautious in their uh, resistance. But the themes of power, again, it's fascinating to see the internalized ideas about power. They, they shine through everything. Sexism is out of mind, especially looking from the Western perspective. You think it's like one century outdated. Currently, I'm also doing research about a very different field indeed. It's about sustainable fashion journalism. So how to how to write about beautiful things without damaging the planet, which is clearly a detour for memes. But um, I'm glad the book is out there and it has lots of great ideas and I stand by them. I think they all make sense. Hopefully they'll stand the test of time. Let, let's be not too ambitious, maybe 10 years <laughs> and then we'll see. <laughs>